street food heaven. We're in Japan. Why are you watching videos? Just using my phone to find our next meal. What's that? Let's find out. With my Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra, I can circle it with the S Pen and search right in the app. Looks like it's called Takoyaki. Tofu! Actually, it's fried octopus. <laughs> I knew that. Circle it, find it. With the new Galaxy S24 Ultra and circle the search with Google. Get yours now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. AutoLine After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone. Your journey, our passion. And by Chevrolet. Chevy runs deep. This is AutoLine After Hours with John McElroy, episode 141 for March 16, 2012, Inside an American Icon. Watch AutoLine After Hours live at AutoLine.tv every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time or 2200 GMT. You can subscribe to this podcast for free by searching for AutoLine in iTunes, Stitcher, or by following the links on our website. All right, Peter, here we are again, man. Boy, these weeks just keep flying by. Yes, in our new time. New time, yeah, starting at 6 p.m. for us. Uh, it's going to be a whole lot better, I think. I think so. <laughs> right. Hey, and we've got uh, Bryce Hoffman from the Detroit News joining us, Skyping in from New York this evening. Bryce, great having you here, too. Good evening, gentlemen. Hey, Bryce. So we'll, we'll be talking about your book later in the program, but there's some other things that uh, we've got to get into right now. And, uh, Peter, you're the one who I think first brought this to my attention, this Delta Wing race car. That is a radically different design, and yes. today was supposed to be the day, what, they showed it to the press? and maybe Yeah, they unveiled it officially to the press at Sebring and announced the, the participating manufacturer, which is Nissan. Uh, actually, Nissan Europe is the driving uh, force behind it. And uh, the car uh, was designed by Ben Balby. It was originally proposed as um, an alternative view for the next generation IndyCar with the 2012 IndyCar, right. which didn't come to fruition. And then Duncan Dayton got involved. From Highcroft, Highcroft racing, racing, very successful in sports car racing. Two-time uh, ALMS champion. In fact, we had him on the show, what, yeah. last summer? Yeah. And um, they took Ben Bobby's plans and they converted him to a Le Mans entry. And uh, Dan Gurney's All-American Racers built the car. Um, it already has an entry to Le Mans because it's the 56th garage, which they reserve for technically interesting and advanced, you know, visual, you know, visionary machines. So, and this car is that. Yes, it's, uh, you know, it's a thing. Uh, people, uh, people poo-pooed it. I mean, really smart people say he said it won't turn got a very narrow front track. And right, so they think that it can't generate enough side force to really go through the corners right. fast. And in their initial tests, first of all, the, the cars met every computer uh, projection on what it would do. They took it to the wind tunnel. It, it met every aerodynamic goal. They took it to uh, Button Willow Raceway to shake down. It turns in. Matter of fact, it turns in extremely well. The mid-corner performance is steady right on. I guess the out-of-corner out acceleration is extremely good. And, of course, it's a rocket on the straightaway because it has no frontal area. Right. Now, this is a four-cylinder direct-injected turbocharged engine with uh, they've got it tuned for about 325 horsepower. And it's only 1.6 liters. Yes. But the car only weighs a thousand pounds, which is staggeringly yeah. light. So, so half the weight, half the drag. Ergo, you can put in a dinky little engine with only three hundred horses, which will get incredibly incredible fuel mileage at Le Mans. Mm -hmm. So and fewer pit stops. Fewer pit stops. Um, so yeah, it's the real deal, and these, and they're going to run the car in, in a, a very serious test next week at Sebring. After the 12-hour weekend, they're going to run four days of intense testing. And uh, 
The only big problem with it is uh, it doesn't have an American manufacturer behind it, and it was the perfect opportunity for them. It was, but kudos to Nissan yeah. for stepping up. They showed, you know, courage and vision in, in providing the engine yeah, for this car. Uh, Dun- I don't know if uh, Simon had anything to do with it, but kudos to him if he did. Yeah, Simon and, well, actually, Duncan went to the Frankfurt Auto Show and spoke to Mr. Tavares, who's in a real gearhead. Oh, is he really? Yeah. yeah. Real and Carlos, who, yeah, Tavares, who's the, the head of Nissan. North uh, America. Right. Actually, yeah. isn't, he in, isn't he at Renault now? He might have moved, but anyway, yeah. he's the one that said this is really interesting. But other manufacturers did, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, other manufacturers uh, were very intrigued. But Audi, they didn't pull the trigger. No. Well, Audi was very intrigued, but, you know, they're all. They got a car. Yeah, but they were very intrigued, very complimentary. Uh, you know, all the manufacturers that you you would think might be interested were interested, and they applauded the effort. But kudos to Nissan and Nissan Europe for for stepping up. Now I got to believe if this car performs well, it is going to have a dramatic impact on race car design. Exactly, and their computer projections. Okay, you know, computer projections are one thing, actual track testing, but it has met or exceeded every one of its projections. And it's easy to see that this car will lap probably as quick, if not quicker, than the Audi turbo diesels at Le Mans and use less fuel. Than even the diesel. And Than even the diesels. And, you know, if the thing doesn't break, they can just lay around in like 10th, 11th, 12th place on the lead lap till there's about four hours to go. <laughs> so this is going to be yeah. very interesting. Now... It's not classified, so technically it can't win overall, but, you know... It will not be awarded the winner position, even if it finishes first. Right. However, knowing the, Fran- uh, the French and how they're intrigued with this advanced technology, Nissan just bought themselves at least $100 million worth of advertising and image enhancement by affiliating with this car. Sure. Because you, you got to know, every motorsports racer in the world who covers Le Mans is going to do a story on this car. It's the story in motorsports in 2012. The it, story. I believe that this car, and let's see how well it performs, but this is the most intriguing race car to come down the pike in, I think, over 40 years. Yeah, you said that. I mean, this is, this is what racing is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to try new things. And, uh, you know, of course... Once technology overwhelmed the sport and it became a sport of dialing back restrictions, you know, because safety, they don't want cars going into the crowd. They don't want any of that. But because of that, racing's lost a lot. So no doubt. It's interesting. And the thing is just unbelievable. It's in test form. It's all flat black with mm-hmm. Nissan on it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it'll be, there'll be a color for Le Mans, probably yeah. with Nissan's uh, color, and, but it's, it's really cool. Yeah, no, like I say, kudos to Nissan. I, I think they show a lot of courage and vision in stepping up to that program. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. Hey, another thing on the news, changing topics here, Ferdinand Piak. <laughs> Bryce, did you follow this one of uh, Piek appointing his wife to the, the board of management at the Volkswagen Group? I did. It just gets more incestuous all the time, doesn't it? <laughs> what I like is, you know, Angela Merkel comes to power in Germany. She's the chancellor. And, like, almost overnight, the story erupts in Germany. Hey, there are no women or, or damn few women on the boards of the major corporations in Germany. Or upper echelon senior executives. Or even that, too, right. But they especially wanted the board. So now everybody's running around appointing their token woman. And Piet goes, okay, we'll appoint a woman. Hey, wifey, get over here. (laughs) (laughs) You're joining the board. His fourth wife. His fourth wife. I, I don't know if you saw what we did on Autoline Daily today, but... Uh, this guy I know in town, uh, Vim Van Acker, wrote in, and he says, yeah, the joke in Germany is that uh, the four rings of Audi oh, right. represent the four wedding rings because this is his fourth wife. <laughs> 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 Wasn't he married to one of his cousins at one point, too? I don't know. I mean, I mean, to some of our listeners, I mean, they should know that Piek is the grandson of Porsche. Of Ferdinand Porsche. Ferdinand right. Porsche. 
you know, it's amazing. Think about it. You got the Ford family that essentially controls Ford. Toyota family, you know, enormously influential, if not controlling, of Toyota. The Peugeot family still involved with uh, Peugeot. And the Pieck and Porsche family essentially controlling the entire Volkswagen group. Absolutely. Yeah. And Agnelli, too. And oh, and the, the Agnelli family with Fiat. And the Fiat, and the, the Renault family just sort of got stiff-armed uh, a month or two ago, you know, because the French government confiscated Renault from the family at the end of World War II because uh, Renault himself, the man, had collaborated with the Germans. So they said, we're, we're yanking this away from you. And they had just been appealing. I mean, they've been appealing since the end of the war to try to get their mitts back on that company. And they didn't do it. But it's, it's just astonishing to me to see how many families, you know, 100 years later in many cases, are still in control of those companies. It, it's extraordinary. It is. It really is. And that's not true in other industries. Certainly not industrial corporations. I think if yeah. you looked into certain other things, in fact, I once saw a fascinating uh, documentary of this club in the world that the only way you can join the club is if you run a company that has been continuously in business for 200 years. And it was just amazing. And it was mostly European and some Asian. There was uh, very few Americans and some others in, in there, too. But almost invariably, they were in cosmetics, jewelry, or some sort of spirits, whiskey and, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. But uh, Isn't the Mars, is, uh, the Mars candy, that has been a family. A family thing? thing? Yeah. Huh. yeah. But uh, I, I got to hand it to Piek. <laughs> Bringing his wife on board. I don't think Angela Merkel had that in mind when she said, let's get more women on the board. Well, yeah, and, and are the other board members going to say no, no? No, not at all. That got me looking into uh, a number of boards to see who's got women on their board. So Fiat and Chrysler, zip. Uh, BMW just appointed a woman in the last week or so. Uh, Mercedes, or Daimler, I should say, has one. Uh, Volkswagen had none until, you know, Pieck put his wife in there. Uh, Ford has, I think it's two out of 17, but yeah. General Motors has four, four out of 12. So, and And what other women have told me is you meet... If you really want women to have an influence and not just be a token female on the board, you need a minimum of three for them to, to for the guys to really start paying attention and listening to them. So kudos to GM. They got the best. Well, you know, the interesting thing at Ford, too, is is Hank DeDuce famously said that none of the Ford women would ever serve on the board of directors. And uh, and I, I think Elena has definitely been trying to challenge that uh, theory, but uh, we'll see if that works. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And uh, uh, really, none of the Ford women have ever achieved much as an executive in the company, too. Elena's got to be the one that's gone the farthest so far. Yep, because because Henry Ford II was adamant inside the family that that was not the role of his daughters or any of the other uh, uh, women in the, in the Ford dynasty. Huh. And uh, she's bucked that trend, and at least she's tried to. Yeah. Hey, back to uh, the VW group a minute, because, uh, Peter, i got to ask you, what do you make of Audi buying Ducati or saying that they want to buy Ducati? Well, I mean, they, they, they say for all, you know, lightweight engine technology, blah, blah, blah. I think it's just because they thought, let's be pretty cool to buy Ducati. <laughs> you know, Audi is full of enthusiasts. Oh, and by the way, it would also allow them to go after BMW oh, in the motorcycle oh, market. Geez. So this is just extending oh. their war right. to a new front. God, I never thought of that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, because BMW bikes have transformed. Now they've got the super bikes. They run in the super bike racing. They've got those high-performance super bikes on the street. And Audi is just looking at Ducati and saying, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What I also like, too, is Audi having the autonomy to go out and buy a motorcycle company. Yeah, this says everything about, like you said, on Autoline, about the Volkswagen Group. Right, right. They, they, run those, they let those brands pretty much run themselves the way they want to, which I think is the way to do it. 
but well, it mirrors General Motors in their heyday. In the when GM was great. Yeah, more than any other company. It's amazing to me. I never thought I'd I'd see that, but that's exactly what's going on in the Volkswagen Group. Mm-hmm. I'd love to look at Ducati's financials. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what kind of money they make, and I, I, I just haven't seen that, and I haven't had a time to set aside to just troll through the Internet trying to find that info. I actually think it's a good fit. It'll be interesting if the deal goes through. So I, I tried to count it up. I think the Volkswagen Group is now up to 11 brands. It's a, it's a, now I'm counting things like MAN, the big diesel maker, and Scania, the heavy truck one. But, hey, those are brands. You know, those are operations. Lamborghini. And, uh, Lamborghini, Bentley, Seat, Skoda, Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, Ducati. And, and you almost could count Volkswagen's commercial vehicles as a, as a brand unto themselves. Sure. Because it's run completely separate from the car group. Yeah. Just amazing. And speaking of uh, exotic, high-performance sports cars, what about Lotus, man? There's uh, this word that they may get the boot. Well, we got wind of this last summer, and there's been ominous rumblings about Lotus for two years now. And, you know, all those plans showing those five concepts, and it's it, that was all smoke and mirrors because apparently they could, you know, to get the plug pulled on them. Right, because... The financial plug. Right. Of course, it's uh, Proton out of Malaysia that's owned Lotus since, I think, like 1996 or 1997. And now there's this new conglomerate investment group that's buying a controlling interest of Proton. And they're they're looking at Lotus and going, wait a minute. Like you said, I'm sure they're going, this is a bunch of smoke and mirrors. This isn't working. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they've hinted that they may need a management change, which means Danny Behar may be looking for a job. I think it's already, I think he's already on the way out, really. Right. And Bob Lutz is on their board of advisors, too. But I don't know is that they're going to need a board of advisors no. going forward if this thing goes down the tubes. I don't think so. So... Well, hey, look, uh, uh, we need to think about taking a commercial break right now because, Bryce, we want to get back to you and talking all about your book, American Icon, here. In fact, I I should mention to everybody, we're going to have a contest at the end of the show where you can win a free copy of this book. But, uh, Ben, uh, why don't we take a commercial break and thank our good friends at Bridgestone. So, as we said before, uh, Bryce Hoffman from the Detroit News, who just wrote a book called American Icon, all about the Ford Motor Company, is Skyping in from New York because he's on a whirlwind media tour telling all the world about this thing. Is it, I got that right there, Bryce? You do. You do. It has been a whirlwind. <laughs> Looking forward to getting back to Detroit. <laughs> cool. So give everybody uh, you know, a real quick snapshot of what this book is about. You know, what, what's the one or two sentence description? Sure. It's uh, it, American Icon, Alan Mulally, and the fight to save Ford Motor Company. I, uh, you know, I've been covering Ford for the news since 2005, and I, you know, obviously we knew we were witnessing an incredible story here. In, you know, in what was going on there, it was either going to be the salvation of Ford or its its demise. And when it was clear that Ford had turned the corner, I, I talked to Bill Ford, I talked to Alan Mulally, and I asked them if, if, you know, I could come in and tell the kind of behind the scenes story of what happened there. And to their credit. You know, they gave me all the access I asked for um, with no restrictions and, and let me kind of have the keys to the kingdom to go inside and see what really went on. And it was just a, it was an amazing experience because there was so much that happened that we didn't know about, you know, things like secret alliances with Toyota and Honda. Yeah, you tell, know, that, but, tell, tell that story because uh, not a lot of people know about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really interesting at the height of the crisis at at the end of 2008, when a lot of suppliers were on the brink of bankruptcy, Ford reached out to pretty much the rest of the major OEMs and and said, look, you know, let's work together to to kind of help the key suppliers that are important to all of us stay in business. And General Motors didn't want anything to do with it. They thought it was an antitrust violation. Chrysler was in such bad shape then that Ford couldn't even figure out who to call back from day to day to see if they were interested. But Toyota and Honda, they're they're arch enemies, you know, were more than happy to come and be part of this. And uh, and they worked with Ford, uh, you know, for 
this really critical moment in the industry's history to kind of make sure that the, the major suppliers, the key suppliers, um, didn't go down. Which is pretty cool. I mean, I, that's one thing I like about this business is everybody wants to put a boot in the other company's face when it's out in the market, you know, battling. But uh, then you hear about things like this where they, they pull together. Of course, they kind of have to. You know, if they didn't pull together, the whole thing could collapse around them. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, I mean, I remember I was in Japan in, in the spring of 2009, and I was meeting with, with, you know, executives from both of those companies, and I was also meeting with government people, and, you know, at the time, they were telling me, I, I remember I, ha I had a meeting with the head of Medi over there, the government agency that, that, that runs their auto industry, and his exact words to me were, we think that, that a government bailout by your government of GM and Chrysler would be a gross violation of the WTO agreement, and we firmly support it. You know, that was really the mentality at that time. Huh. So, I mean, the hero in your book clearly is Alan Mulally. This guy was the change agent that has transformed that company. Yeah, and I, you know, I think this, 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 this whole thing that happened in the supply sector is kind of an example of that because, you know, uh, I think it took someone like Mulally to be able to say, yeah, let's, let's work with Toyota and Honda. He didn't have the history of rivalry with, with them, as you, as you guys know. I mean, when he came into this town, he, he ruffled everybody's feathers his first day in Detroit by saying that he drove a Lexus because it was the best car in the world. You know, and uh, I, I remember Bill Ford saying, yeah, it's being keyed in the parking lot right now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he didn't he didn't have the baggage. He didn't have the, the history that some of the other executives in this town had to be able to, to do that. Uh, the fascinating thing, too, is <clears throat> Bill Ford coming to grips with the reality that the fiefdoms in Ford, uh, he couldn't do anything about it. And he had he 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 knew that if that couldn't be broken, that they didn't have a chance. Exactly. And he as you guys know, I mean, he had tried, you know, to to, to change things and people people just wouldn't give him straight answers. I mean, he would sit in meetings and, and there, there's a there's a, a meeting in particular that I describe in the book where where he was asking, you know, why why can't we get this great European focus in the U.S.? You know, why do we have to, to make do with this crappy old focus that we've got here? And, you know, apparently Padilla said to him, well, you know, the product cycles don't line up. You know, and and Bill was like, well, when are they going to line up? They're never going to line up, and that's the case. And and you know, he just got really frustrated that no one would give him a straight answer. And I think it really took someone coming in from the outside, you know, to just say, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't care, I don't want to hear your explanations. Let's just make it happen. Yeah, and you know, Bill is unfailingly a, a, a wonderful guy, and, and I, I don't think Ford's culture feared him because of that. Whereas opposed to Hank the Deuce, I mean, even Iacocca got fired. You know, anybody could have gotten fired by Hank the Deuce on any given day. And Bill, and you know, to his credit, I think Bill's a, a wonderful guy, a great guy. And uh, but the the Im, the the culture in Ford was so entrenched that he couldn't break through it, and they didn't fear him. Exactly. Exactly. But Bryce, and, don't you, know, you think it's more than just an outsider coming in? I mean. Malali put a process in place, and he just kept forcing everybody to adhere to the process, right? I mean, I, I, I'm giving the, the highlight of it, but he had a real breakthrough finally when Mark Fields finally started admitting that he had some problems in his operations. Exactly, John. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. You know, I, I remember when Ford started to turn the corner, I got several calls from guys on Wall Street who would say things like, you know, oh, what GM needs is, is another Mulally. You know, they need to bring in someone, you know, who's an outsider like Ford did. But he wasn't, it wasn't just that he was an outsider. He was an outsider with, with real global manufacturing experience who had already come up with a way of running a global manufacturing company. It happened to build airplanes instead of cars, but it was a lot of overlap. And he brought that system to Ford, and it was this real data-driven approach that was at the heart of it. You know, his Thursday morning meetings where all of the data about every aspect of the company is put up there in a series of 300 slides. They go through them in a kind of a lightning round manner. There's no explanations. There's no excuses. It's just looking at the data and it's color coded. Red means it's off plan. Yellow means it's in danger of going off plan. Green means it's fine. And, you know, Alan told me that, that the first several meetings, everything was green. 
And even though and, the company's and, losing billions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, you know, they hadn't released their their 2006 financials yet, but they already knew what they were. And at one one point, he he just raised his hand in the middle of one of these meetings in late 2006, and he said, "Guys, we're about to lose 12 billion dollars. Is there anything here that's not working?" <laughs> Isn't and, that when Mark Fields said something? Well, the next the next week, Mark was uh, sitting, uh, uh, going through his slides uh, to get ready for the meeting. And as you guys may remember, there was a problem with the edge. Uh, there was a problem with with the uh, the the suspension on the edge, and Mark had it green on his chart, even though he knew it was going to be delayed, even though he knew the edge launch was going to be delayed, but. You know, the, 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 the way that I heard it was that he figured he, there was a 50-50 chance he was, he was going to lose his job anyways at that point because you guys remember there was all the speculation about how long Mark would last. So Mark said, you know what, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out and test this guy and see if, he's, if he really means this. And so he changed it to red. And the next meeting came his turn to put up his slides. He put up the slide about the production plan for the edge, and he said, and as you can see here, this is red because we have an issue with the suspension. And the room just fell silent. Everybody was waiting for Mullally to just pull the gun out and, and put it to his temple. And instead, Mullally just started clapping by himself and uh, said, who can help Mark with his problem? And, you know, Tony Brown and, and uh, Benny Fowler said, oh, we can help and stuff. Mark, you know, though, still thought that he might – there was probably a good chance he was going to get fired before the next meeting. And when he showed up and still had his job a week later, I think that's when everyone else realized it was okay to tell the truth. <laughs> okay, but for me, the real question now is can Allen keep the momentum going? I've always argued that if you know what you're doing, it's actually easier to fix a broken company as long as – you know, the structure of the company is good. And Ford still had the capability of building great cars. Even though it wasn't doing so, it had the capability. But I've always said it's easier for a manager to go in and frick, fix a broken operation or even a company. But keeping it there and growing it from there, that's, that's not easy. So what's your sense of Ford from that standpoint? I, I think you're right. I remember, John, the first time that Alan came to the Detroit News to do his first interview with us, which was about six weeks after he started at Ford, you know, he, he was going – we were kind of hitting him up with a list of all the company's problems. And he said, you know, this all makes me feel better because if everything was, was great at Ford, I wouldn't know what to do. But there's so many things that need to be fixed. I can see, I can see how we can get this thing back. And now they've, they've fixed most of those things. You know, I think that that, that is a real test. But if you look, I mean, they, they, their, their growth has slowed down, but they are still making money. They're still growing. They're dealing with the same headwinds in Europe that everybody is dealing with, and they're still trying to play catch up in Asia. I think that's part of the reason why Alan is still there, even though, you know, he's, he's reached the retirement age is because he, he told me several times when we were working on this book, um, you know, and, you know, he's, he puts everything in aviation, you know, format still. He said, I didn't come to Dearborn to save this company. I came here to take it flying. And we're still we still got to get the nose up and stay up. And, and I think he really wants to prove to people that he didn't just, you know, slap a Band-Aid on it. Well, I, yeah. And I think his ability to focus the organization and keep it focused will prove to be extremely uh, beneficial to all involved because he is not going to let them go off track. Yeah, you, you clearly understand Ford well, too, Peter. Yeah. You, you got a, a good feeling about where they're going in the yeah. future still. I think, yeah, and I think as long as Alan keeps the everyone in line and focused, I think they will do well because they're not, you know, you don't see any of the old Detroit thing, you know, you put together a few good quarters and everyone's high-fiving in the hallways. No, it's pretty much a nice job. Now everyone get back to work. They got their heads down. They're focused. Um, they just had a, a major change in product development, but I think that's going to prove to be excellent. With Derek Husak yeah. retiring and uh, Raj Nair coming I in. I think Raj is going to do great. I mean, the guy's a real enthusiast and a racer, mm -hmm. and uh, that bodes well. And I, and I just think Alan will not let them go off the rails. It's just he will will it that way if he has to. The, the one you know, and I ask, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Bryce. Well, I was just going to say, I asked him that, that very question when we were working on the book. And, and, you know, his point is that 
that's why he that's why he harps so much on his on this this meeting system. That's why he's tried to hammer it home so many times to these executives, because his belief is, is, look, guys, if I leave and you just keep following this system, you keep having these Thursday meetings, you keep looking at the data, you'll be fine. And and so it's really a process that he's trying to, to put in there. And, you know, you, you made the point about about Raj, Peter. And, 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 and you know, I, I think that that's actually a real strong proof point about how how much Ford has changed, because the, the loss of a guy like Derek Kuzak a few years ago would have been a major crisis at Ford Motor Company because their bench was so thin. But a big part of Mullally's strategy has been to develop. He, you know, he told me he's constantly got everybody developing people three levels down beneath them in every one of the key functions in the company. So that when people move on, it isn't a crisis like it used to be. And we also just saw, you know, Lewis Booth leaving too. And, uh, you know, uh, again, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, Neil Schloss is a, is a great guy. To, I'm sorry, not Neil, it's a, a Bob Shanks. Uh, is a great guy to come in and uh, take over that role too. So this transition from, from the, the generation that kind of went through the crisis to this new generation that's been kind of groomed under Mullally's leadership, I think is, is really significant too. The one thing that I'm bullish on them is that, I mean, this one Ford plan still isn't done. They're still consolidating product on a global basis. You know, if you just look uh, in the U.S., you know, the Fusion and the Mondeo going to become, you know, the same vehicle. The fact that the Transit, and I'm not talking the Transit Connect, but the big van. Yeah, the big van. Coming big here, one. too. So uh, what I'm getting at is there are still more efficiencies to be wrung out of the system. Not to mention, you know, they have a whole new challenge on the table in resurrecting Lincoln. And, you know, I know at one point Alan, you know, uh, was wondering out loud, if, if, if this is one Ford, why do we need Lincoln? And that was a heavy-duty discussion. Uh, but uh, several people reminded him that, you know, you're going to want that luxury brand down the road. You're going to need it. You know, you're going to need just it. Just go back to what we were talking about earlier with Volkswagen. Look how much money they can make off their luxury brands. And, of course, you can lose them, too. Bentley hasn't been making money lately. But when you look at the profit margins at uh, BMW and Daimler and Audi, Ford needs the same thing. Yeah, and, and the good thing is, and the refreshing thing is, and you know it's not old time to Detroit anymore, is they understand that it'll take 10 years just to move the needle. They, they, they're focused on that. They understand that. The family understands it. The board understands it. So, uh, you know, that product cadence as it rolls out is going to be very interesting because it looks very promising right now. Bryce, one you of know, the things that I found fascinating in your book is you said that uh, Malali was told before he even went to the company that if everything went right, he did everything right, everything performed the way it was supposed to. He could be the first executive in the business to earn half a billion dollars in his career. And he's almost there. He's <laughs> almost there. In fact, what they just announced, uh, $58 million uh, for last year? Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, and, and he's still got a lot, of, a lot of shares and stuff out there that are worth quite a bit of money. He's, I, I think he's, he's within like, a, you know, 100, $150 million of hitting that mark, which is pretty incredible you know but you know if you talk to people at ford it's you know one thing that i've heard and i'm sure you guys here have heard too is there's a lot of people who say hey you know i have no problem giving him that money if, if he's going to make the company successful it's not like these guys on wall street are getting paid that type of money to, to drive their companies their banks into the ground oh yeah no i mean it's two three years ago i said they could give him a billion dollars and it wouldn't bother me at all yeah it's performance based i mean you know Right. And we should pause now <laughs> to go off topic a little bit. Uh, remember when uh, Chrysler was so proud to announce that Sergio, oh, Sergio didn't make any money last year. You know, <laughs> you know this, is a, Chrysler. this is a definite dig by uh, Chrysler's PR to, and then, uh, and then the UAW guy in Toledo said, oh, yeah, Allen's our, our you know, Sergio's our guy. And then they just announced today that Sergio made $19.1 million last year. On the Fiat yeah, but it side. was in euros, Peter, so it's okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. It's okay. But Bryce, yeah, what do you, what do you think the UAW's going to, I mean, they don't like Alan making all this money. 
No, I mean, Bob King has not made any secret of the fact that as much as he likes what Allen's done for Ford and as much as he likes what Allen has done for, for bringing jobs back to this country, he's told me several times that he thinks, I mean, his exact words to me was he doesn't think there's anybody who deserves to make that much well, money. Well, he also said it was morally wrong. Right. Yeah. And that was yeah. just like, oh, boy. Right. But don't you think that Ford, not just Ford, but, I mean, GM and Chrysler, I I. I think the next contract round is is not going to be pretty. I, th- I think we're going to sow the seeds of a future collapse. It could be, but you know, a lot of people expected Ford to to to, to kind of have more more problem this time around, and they really didn't. I mean, you know, I heard a lot of people whispering to me, you know, behind the scenes during these contract talks that because of Mulally's salary and because of how well the company was doing, that Ford was. You know, either going to get struck or more likely it was going to have to seriously overpay for this contract. But they really didn't have to overpay that much at all. You know, I think that at the end of the day, a lot of the, the you know, despite what Bob King may be talking about, a lot of the members, you know, are grateful to have jobs and they see the factories humming again. They see jobs coming back in. And I think that means a lot more to them than what the CEO makes. Boy, I hope so. Because <laughs> uh, I, I don't. Th- like I said, I'll, I'll just stick with what I said. I think in the next contract round, uh, the union's going to try to grab back a whole lot. I think we could very easily see a strike. Well, yeah, it all depends, though, if, 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 if their numbers keep dwindling. And, you know, every time an old... Union members yeah, dwindling, Yeah, every right? time an older member retires, the, the new member isn't making as much and has a totally different perspective... I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I'm still convinced the UAW is in a downward spiral that they're never going to recover from. Could be. Could be. Although it, it, that downward spiral could go on another 20 years. I well, think. yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah. I, I, I would hope that they argue over how much profit sharing they get rather than baking in fixed costs, which is what, what killed really. Detroit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really did. Well, you know, it's kind of funny, too. This time around, you know, everyone expected Allen to kind of be the boogeyman, but Sergio's the one who kind of ended up being the boogeyman for the union when he, you know, he kind of, you know, pushed hard on on uh, some of these issues that, that the union wasn't expecting him to push on. And then he's already started negotiating the next contract, you know, two days after the last one was signed by saying that he wants to see Tier 2 go away. Well, Sergio, you know, Sergio negotiates in the media. Exactly. I mean, this is his, Which this, is good for us. Yeah, this is his. Yeah, <laughs> this is his uh, mo. I mean, it's it's mo in Italy, and I, I'll give Sergio credit on that regard. I mean, he he plays hardball, and you know, because well, Fiat was such a mess. As I joked, he could have eliminated two thirds of those their espresso machines and uh, showed a dramatic <laughs> increase in their profits. It was so bad, but uh, <laughs> hey, uh. We want to get to rapid fire in a minute, uh, and we got to take another commercial break. But what I wanted to say is, I think we got about a half a dozen of your books, Bryce, to give away. So we're going to have a, a contest here, open to everybody or anybody. And uh, but you got to answer a question, and the question is, and don't say it if you know it, Bryce. <laughs> what is Alan Mulally's middle name? So anybody who wants to win a copy of American Icon, Bryce's book that's that's hitting all the bookstores right now, and he's doing his whirlwind media tour, email it to us. Send it to viewermail at autolinedetroit.tv, and you got to get us Alan Mulally's middle name, and we will pick at random from the list of correct answers and we'll mail you a free book uh, of Bryce's. So should they, put money? Some, should they put something in the subject line? Uh, yeah, they should put, like, uh, Malali name or American icon or I want the book or <laughs> <laughs> anything like that. But, hey, let's take a, a quick uh, uh, break right now. We'll come back and do rapid fire and get into all the questions from our audience. But, Ben, let's give a, a good thank you to our good friends at Chevrolet. It was more than a car to him. It really was his baby. Oh, no. That's my old Chevy. Dear God. 
Okay, it's time to get to the audience questions, what we call rapid fire. Ben, get it going. Okay, first thing we got is a comment from Jesse Henry, Jesse W. Henry, who says, I am not looking forward to the transit. I don't like the look of the Euro vans. I think the Econoline is a damn good looking van. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I love the transit, the look of the transit, so to each his own. They just redesigned it. Uh, I, I understand where he's coming from. Some of the Euro design vans, it's it's a little bit funky, but, man, that Econoline has been around. I think it first came out in 1976. I, I, I understand. The Econoline nameplate came out in the 60s. Right. But if you look at that basic body on frame, the, the overall style, I, I think it was around 75, 76, something like that when it came out. That's an old van. Uh, oh, here's a, a comment from Jesse, too. How much does Bob King make? Do you know that offhand, Bryce? You know, what? I just saw that figure. He, did, he, made, he, he makes uh, in the six figures. I'm not sure exactly how high, but but some somebody just showed me that it uh, it definitely puts him in the one percent, the top one percent of uh, income earners in the country. Which is that is right? I thought I thought he was around like 185 thousand dollars a year or something like somebody that. Somebody said that that's that's high enough in Detroit to put you in the top one percent. So <laughs> the bar is lower here. You know, the bar is lower in Detroit. Yeah, that's true. Uh, okay, Ray Schaffer, I, I, I think I said that right, uh, says, Bryce, thanks for offering your insight into Ford's recent turnaround under the leadership of Alan Mulally. I look forward to reading the book. I'm curious to know what characteristic in particular Mr. Mulally has that allowed him to do that, to turn around. What is I, it about I, Alan? That's a great question, Ray. I, you know, I think that there's a couple of things, really. One is his charisma. As, as, as all of us who've, who've met Alan and worked with him know, the guy is just incredibly charismatic. But he, you know, he's got this, you know, as he puts it himself, this relentless determination. It's, it's the iron fist and the velvet glove. He's this nice, aw, shucks guy. But he's going to get it done, and he's going to get it done at all costs. And I think that that, you know, you talked about how, how Bill wasn't able to kind of break through some of these fiefdoms at Ford. It's that it's that iron fist that really was able to take a sledgehammer to the culture there and just shatter all these walls. And I think that that was critical. Yeah, and, and Alan also, you know, exactly comes off like this, aw shucks, Kansan, almost Jimmy Stewart like. Yeah. But don't let that mislead you. He will get yeah. things done, and he he does make uh, his point. I, I, I'll say, too, he's, he's probably the most extraordinary executive I've met, and I've been in this business almost 35 years. I've met everybody in the world in this business in that time frame. He's the most different, and he's got an incredible knack with people. And he dives deep down into the organization. I've had secretaries. I've had car mechanics. I've had people deep down in the bowels of Ford say they got a note from Alan or a call from Alan, and, you know, other people just don't do that. And, yeah. and I'll tell you, they'll, they'll walk through walls. They'll walk in, into machine gun nests for that guy. They love him there. Yeah, exactly. Mitch W. says, for Peter, with Formula One and ALMS season beginning this weekend, what do you think about traction control in racing? Some leagues allow it, others don't. I think Formula One just banned it for this year. Um, you know, I don't know. I, on the one hand, I like old school, shift yourself and, and all that. And on the other, I, you know, I'm a big booster in advancing technology but when it comes to traction control, I still would like to see the drivers determine that. I agree. And uh, that's one particular part of the modern-day racing that I would like to see. Just You just can't do it. You just can't have it on a car because the premium is placed on the driver's ability. Correct. I, I agree. And launch control, too. I don't want to see any sort of yeah. programming of, of them coming back, you know, oh, you know, the, the software didn't work. No, I don't want to hear that crap. Yeah, especially the standing stars of Formula 1. You know, that's what you do. you got to figure it out. I, I just, you know, it can't be completely a video game. Remember, we've talked about this before. McLaren uh, can run their Formula 1 car without a driver on any racetrack <laughs> in the world. <laughs> They know they literally have the capability to 
to run a computer program that will run that car at any circuit okay. in the world. You know, we can't go there. No, we shouldn't. We, we Look, have to have the drivers drive. I'm, as you know, I'm a huge proponent of autonomous cars. Yeah. Not for racing. No. <laughs> Forget it. That's no. not what it's about. No. Hey, uh, Mitch wants to know, too, did marketing the Corvette get in the way of GM supporting the Delta Wing at Le Mans? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, Mark Rice uh, is basically runs that whole thing, as, uh, those, those decisions, and his technical group just didn't feel that the Delta Wing was ready. Okay. It was not ready for prime time. Was there some not invented here thing going on in there? Probably. But uh, they weren't sure that they could get it done in time to run. And they didn't, you know, one thing about these manufacturers, they don't want to be embarrassed. Right. And, you know, Mark's, Mark's a racing enthusiast, and they just made the decision based on the information they had mm-hmm. at the time. Hey, we got a, a phone call uh, coming in here, Ben. Let's bring that in. Good evening, man. This is Youngblood, Cleveland, Ohio, calling. Hey, Youngblood. Yeah. I just wanted to bring hey, to uh, John's attention that uh, Exxon Mobil just released a paper. It was called Outlook for Energy, yeah. and they're suggesting that the uh, gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel is still going to be the main way to go up to 2040. But a little piece of information that was very interesting. One of their uh, sentences here was all of the energy concentrated in one gallon of gasoline is enough to charge an iPhone once a day for 20 years. Man, that says everything. You know, these electric people, you know, read this. Understand their time is not right now. Maybe in 20 years it might be, but not now. Uh, I have a question for Mr. Hoffman. Sure. I had an opportunity to meet with uh, Mr. Derek Kuzek at a SAE uh, Society of Automotive Engineers yep. meeting, and we were talking about Mr. Malali, and he couldn't say enough of good about him. And after he was done talking about him, it's like, I wondered, what makes this guy so good? Everybody that works with him loves him, and he gets results. Like, what, what's his technique? What's different about him that other, other managers don't have? Uh, well, like he... To, he... I think we just covered that. But. We, we did. But, but. but, you know, one thing about engineering, though, is, you know, he is an engineer by training, and he really takes the engineering function very seriously. He listens to engineers. He listens to guys like Derek in a way that I don't think they were really listened to for a while in Ford. That's a great point. Yeah. That's an excellent point. I, I, I think you nailed it right there, Bryce. Alan treats everybody with respect, but you're absolutely right. He knows engineering. He knows electronics. There's a reason why Ford was first with Sync and my Ford Touch. Okay, they had some issues, but nonetheless, they beat everybody to the market by a wide margin. And you need exactly. a technocrat at the top of the company to say, this is the right thing to do. Do it. You know, he told me one of my first meetings with him, he told me engineers create all the value in this company. Bean counters don't create anything. And he really believes that. Oh, yeah. It's, it, well, it's well, true. That's true. <laughs> right. Okay, Brian uh, has got a question for you, Bryce. He says, sooner or later, Alan Mulally will retire. Has he ever spoken of what the next chapter of his life will entail? You know, I, I asked him about that, Brian, and he's very he's he's very noncommittal on that. I'm curious to see myself. I mean, there, there's uh, there's people at Boeing who have already started a bring back Allen campaign. They even have a website uh, because Boeing has has run into some problems since he left. There's a lot of people who'd like to see him run for public office. I've I've gotten a lot of emails for people who want to know why he doesn't run for president. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what he does. Well, you know, um, he he would make a great president, but I I, I kind of think he'll he'll go back to Seattle and he'll be sitting there for a couple days, and then that'll last about exactly a couple <laughs> days, and then I I wouldn't be shocked if he just kind of eases back into Boeing. Oh, I'll go in three days a week. Just help. I think you could be very right about yeah, that. Help the bo- yeah, help the boys and girls out a little bit. <laughs> and the next thing you know, because Alan, if you spend time, he's a very young man in every respect. I mean, he's yeah. the, he's 65 years old, but, or yeah, 66, whatever. 66. But, he, yeah, he's got the energy of a 21-year-old. Yeah, you never know it. Exactly. So I, th- that would be my first guess. I don't think he uh, he has any interest in politics, but I happen to believe he'd make a fabulous president. Yeah. 
I agree on both points. Hey, here's here's a, a, a very this is a good comment here. This is from VRM Chris. I, it's, it's a little bit long, but essentially it gets down to this. He says it's not good for a CEO to get as much as Mr. Mullally gets while those under him, as in the average worker, are asked to hold the line on wages. What do you what do you well, say to that, Bryce? You know, I mean, that that's a good point. But I mean, to be fair, they Ford has restored merit pay increases and bonuses for for its all of its salaried employees and and also profit sharing for the UAW. So people aren't exactly holding the line anymore at Ford. But it is you know, it's true that people were asked to take some very painful pay cuts, in, in, you know, for a while there. But I think that now that the company is on the rebound, uh, you know, people are sharing in its success at all levels of the company. Yeah. You know, I've always made this observation, too, is that when sports figures like Calvin Johnson of the Detroit Lions just got a contract, what is it, $132 million? Yes. <laughs> Something uh, like that. That takes him to 2018. Uh, 60 of it is guaranteed. Right. But he's the best at his position. But he's the best at his position. But the average person says, well, yeah, because look at how the guy can run and catch and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they all, I swear to God, everybody thinks, well, I could run the Ford Motor Company. I mean, what does it take to be a CEO? Come on, you know. So they don't see that an Alan Mulally at, in, in his cohort is the Calvin Johnson of CEOs. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so I don't think there's any question that there may not even be a Ford Motor Company if that guy hadn't showed up. Who knows? Well, that, that's very possible. But, but I do yeah. understand the critique that, you know, especially these Tier 2 employees coming in at $14.50 and the union saying hey, pay is, more. This, but, has been, this has been an argument in American society around the world since time began when some guy had three more coconuts than the other guy down the road. I mean, Babe Ruth made $100,000 in 1927. It was just like, oh, it's outrageous. And they asked him, don't you feel guilty about that? I mean, you make more than the president of the United States. And he said, well, I had a better year than he did. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, this is a perpetual right. thing. Yeah, the, the argument will never go away. Hey, we got another phone call. Let's uh, bring that in. Hello, this is Bob Longmate from New York. Just um, thinking about the, the title of the book, American Icon, obviously that's for the uh, saving of Ford Motor Company. But I'd have to give uh, <clears throat> Alan Mulally pretty much equal billing. Um, I think he uh, actually saved uh, uh, American manufacturing to a large degree. But uh, he's done exactly with Ford exactly what he did with Boeing, uh, hitting the 787 project with a consensus of opinion. He wanted all of his customers to uh, verify and actually uh, uh, understand exactly what they needed and built the 787 based on consensus opinion. That's all I have to say, and thanks for the show. It's great, uh, everyone uh, participating. Thanks. Thanks. Well, actually, Alan, uh, his last uh, uh, thing at Boeing was the 777. The 777. The 777. Right. Um, the 787, which has had, what, three years delay now or something like that? That was not under Alan, right? No, but well, I mean, obviously. Well, he actually did head the 787 program before he left because it actually started years and years ago. It got right. off track after he left. Yeah, it got off track very because. intimately involved in the design of that plane. But they stopped doing his system. Exactly. They got they, away they, from it. And that's that's where they ran into problems. Right. But, you know, I, I think Bob makes a great point. And if you ask Alan this, you know, he'll tell you and, and he means it. It's it, 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 it's not just PR talk. He really believes that he's, as he puts it, fighting for the soul of American manufacturing. The most important thing to him. I, I really believe is he wants to prove to people that American companies can compete with the best in the world and win. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's a very that's. One of the things that drives Alan, you know that when you talk to him. Yeah. But that was the thing when, when, you know, the Detroit manufacturers went to Washington to be the whipping boys for all those stumble bums at Congress. I mean, they were making all those, you know, you know, Detroit's this, Detroit's that. But they were, you know, they were they were talking. They failed to bring up the fact that, you know, 
the, the fabric of American manufacturing was on the line. Absolutely. I mean, the, the people failed to understand how much technology is produced in Detroit, how much advanced thinking is in Detroit, how much research and development is going on. And, you know, if this country loses that, we are in big trouble. And that was, you know, against all odds. Yeah, if you're a free market person, you say, oh, well, don't bail them out. But in that situation, we could not afford to let the Detroit manufacturers go down because the implications uh, would cripple this country for decades. Exactly. And, you know, even though Ford saved itself and, and didn't take a taxpayer bailout, one of the, the points that I make in the book is that, you know, Ford really pushed, I think, harder than anyone realized behind the scenes for a bailout of GM and Chrysler because they knew that this was not in anybody's interest to see these companies go down. And they would have taken the whole thing down with them, including Ford. Well, and, the, and they, Ford also knew how bad off these companies were. Yeah. I and mean, that they were just, you know. Comment from Goggles Pisano. He says, Alan Mulally is the Barry Sanders of CEOs, but with better teammates. <laughs> That's true. I mean, they've got a great team at Ford, top, top to bottom. Uh, A.M. Guerrero wants to know uh, about Alan Mulally's one Ford. Why is it that Ford Australia seems to be more independent than Lincoln? They have unique models like the Falcon and Territory SUV. Well, that's really a legacy of the old Ford. I think you're going to see that going away as part of the one Ford. You made the point, you know, that 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 this is still a work in progress. And I think that, that the days of Ford of Australia being that autonomous are over, and you're going to see them having many of the same cars that are built everywhere, you know, and, and that's really key. I mean, Ford it used to operate around the world like it was a bunch of independent companies. And Mulally kind of famously in one of his early press conferences when we all asked him, you know, hey, are you going to consider a merger? He said, yeah. We all whipped our notebooks out, and he said, we're going to merge with ourselves, and, and he meant it. Yeah. Well, yeah, the big controversy right now in Australia is they've always had a rear-wheel drive high-performance Falcon. Mm -hmm. And there's talk, well, it's you know going to go to the corporate architecture that's either front or all-wheel. But, you know, I, I don't know if that's necessarily true because Ford needs a rear-wheel drive Mustang. Absolutely. And they yeah. have to use that platform for a rear-wheel drive Lincoln, even though, even though they may not admit it, I, I, I would, they bet, will. They I would will. bet everything they're going to be a beautiful rear-wheel drive Lincoln. And I think Australia can use that platform for the Falcon. So I think the hand-wringing will probably go away as that develops. I agree I totally, agree. yeah. Uh, Keith says uh, GM was going to produce 45,000 volts this year. But having sold 800 a month in January and February, it was a little higher in February, uh, they're going to shut down for five weeks. What's your prediction for total volt sales, U.S. and exports, for 2012? I don't have a prediction. I mean, I think I, I like the volt. I appreciate what went into it. But I think the electric thing is starting to fade for the American public. I agree. Um, what they sell last year, I think they did 8,000 volts. Eight or nine thousand. I'll I'll go out on a limb here. I'll say total production, including the ampere, at twenty thousand for twenty twelve. That's my prediction, which is less than half of what they thought they would sell. Uh, Baja Busta says, John, you mentioned on Autoline Daily the Chevy Captiva, which is only sold to rental fleets. What happens when they turn over their vehicles, as most do? Will they sell them, and can they sell them to the public? Absolutely. Yeah, I think they're you know, they're. Certified, legal, right, everything. You will not see ever see a Chevy Captiva as a new vehicle in a Chevrolet dealership, but uh, they sold about seven thousand of them in the, the U.S. market last year. And yeah, ultimately, once the fleets dump them, they'll go to auction, and anybody can buy them at that point. We should mention that uh, GM pulled a fast one for their 2013 Sprint Cup car. They kind of went back to the old school when there were Torino Talladegas and Dodge Daytonas, and they're going to offer rear-wheel rear drive Chevy, unnamed, which they will use in Sprint Cup, Yeah, which I think is very interesting, and I applaud GM for doing that bold. And you got to believe it's the Caprice, well, the Australian course, car that yeah. they sell here as a police car. Of course, and, and but I'm sure that Ed Welburn's troop is going to make it look cool. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Uh, Brian says, Peter, you wrote about Buick in your article this week and commented on them in recent months. 
In your view, besides a new Riviera, what does a competent winning Buick lineup have? Not the new Encore, please. No, I think they do need a drop-dead gorgeous design statement uh, that projects them into the future, which is a Riviera. I absolutely believe they, they need that. Now, any other vehicle of that ilk uh, is going to run up against Cadillac. So I think, you know, Buick LaCrosse, I just drove the Verano. I was very pleased and impressed with it. Uh, you know, those are excellent cars. The Enclave, they're going to do a new Enclave. I don't like the Encore. Um, uh, the Regal, less enthused for that. I mean, I think the Verano's more impressive. But Buick needs a Riviera, and they need a design statement. And if they keep honing that lineup, do what the Japanese did for years. You know, don't reinvent the wheel, but make those cars absolutely as best as they can right. be. Bulletproof, yeah. as you said. And I think they'll do well. Um, but they need a Riviera, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, we got an, another phone call that just came in. Ben, let's uh, bring that in. Hello, Joseph. I am at Key Largo, Florida, for Alan Alley. How about Ford with you picking up the, the tagline, a superb product of American engineering? So tired of hearing about the superb product of German engineering. Thanks. <laughs> well, the only problem with that is that part of the one Ford strategy is that the engineering is being done all over the world. So, you know, you have you have vehicles like the new Ford Focus is, is very much a European engineered vehicle, whereas, you know, the pickup trucks are engineered in Detroit. But it's really a global effort right now. It's, it's hard to, to, to separate it at Ford. Yeah, yeah. good point. Well, hey, uh, it's probably a good time to... Uh, to wrap things up here, I just want to say again, if you'd like to get a copy of Bryce's book, send us an email. Send it to viewermail at autolinedetroit.tv. Let us know what you think Alan Mulally's middle name is, and we'll pick out of the, the pile of correct responses, and uh, we got some books to send out. And let's announce it on Daily on Monday, the winners. Yeah, yeah and uh, yeah, we'll announce it on Autoline Daily. And uh, we'll announce it uh, on the show next week. And, uh, yeah, go ahead. John, if I could, too, if it, I'd just like to invite anyone who wants to talk more about uh, Ford and the book uh, to come out to uh, Barnes & Noble a week from Saturday, March 24th at 4 p.m. in Allen Park, Barnes & Noble, next to Dearborn. And I'm going to be talking more about the book, signing books, and taking questions. Cool. And uh, one thing that we should uh, mention to our audience, too, is uh, – at the New York Auto Show in early April, we're going to be there, and we're thinking of doing Autoline After Hours from New York. In fact, we might even do it at Katz's Deli. And uh, so if you're in New York, folks, uh, you might want to stop by Katz's and seeing us do After Hours. And once we get that all nailed down, we'll give out more details. But just to give you a heads up on that. But, Bryce, thanks so much for uh, joining us tonight. It's cool talking thanks, about guys. the book. Always a pleasure. How do, how do the viewers contact you, Bryce? Uh, they can they can go to my website www.brycehoffman all one word b r y c e h o w f m a n dot com. Cool, good to know. And and the books on what on Amazon or Amazon bookstore, and right? Bookstore near you, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere. Went on sale on Tuesday. Cool. Thanks again. Thanks, Thank you, Bryce. Guys. Yeah. Peter, always good seeing you, man. Good seeing you, John. Let's and do this again next week. Yeah, on our websites. Are we going to talk about our Twitters and websites or anything? Nah. Okay. Everybody knows how to get They know how to find us. Yeah, that's right. Go to Auto Extremist or go to Autoline.tv. There you go. You got it all. And if you can't do that, well, we can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> so long, everybody. Good night, Simon, wherever you are. Visit our website, Autoline.tv, where you can watch us live Thursday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern. Get your daily news fix with Autoline Daily and in-depth analysis and interviews with Autoline This Week. There's all that and much more at Autoline.tv. Autoline After Hours is brought to you by... Bridgestone, your journey, our passion. And by Chevrolet, Chevy runs deep.
This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more.